So that whole experience systematically vanished. The values, the knowledge, camaraderie, and all of that systematically evaporated. Part one of Rathlin Jr.'s episode, we talked about his parents, Heberly Elementary, and baseball. In part two, we continue our conversation about baseball and discuss the courting process, the lottery, and changes in the West End. I'm Key, manager of the Cincinnati and Hamilton County Public Libraries West End branch. Thanks for listening. that time, the Reds played in Crossley Field, and Crossley Field wound up vicariously being in the West End. So, therefore, when the Dodgers, the Brooklyn Dodgers, before they moved to Los Angeles, when the Dodgers came to town, the neighborhood flocked down to see Jackie Robinson. So, in the old bleachers in Crosley Field, you know, that was like the cheap seats. Uh, when the Dodgers came, that would be absolutely, uh, totally sold out, and uh, black people would catch the train um, and drive and all kind of things from West Virginia and other parts to see Jackie Robinson play. And And the other thing of it is, since Cincinnati had a professional baseball team, they had uh, almost a 250-mile radius to uh, gather an audience and a following because the closest team to the north would have been Cleveland, the Cleveland Indians, but they were in the American League. And if you went um, northwest, uh, there was Detroit, but it was also in the American League. So the closest America, uh, National League team to Cincinnati uh, was St. Louis, which is, you know, several hundred miles to the west. And then, you know, Chicago, which was northwest, but it was further away from Cincinnati than, uh, the, you know, than Detroit. And at that time, there were no teams in the South. So if you see the picture uh, uh, that I'm trying to illustrate, we supported and we had ethnic pride because Jackie Robinson represented to us as black people the ideal of we could compete. And he didn't want to include this tidbit at first, but I did want to get the baseball trash talk on the record. Trash talking is a part of any sport, you know. Some of it's designed to kind of intimidate the other players or rattle them, get them them off task or something like that. So when it came to to baseball, for instance, if I'm playing third base – I, I can blurt out something to the pitcher 
that I know that the batter's going to hear to get him rattled. See what I mean? For instance, squeeze that lemon. Or don't worry, he can't hit his butt with both hands. You, you see what I'm saying? <laughs> Unexpectedly, he gave me the lowdown on how the logistics of the courting process worked. When I came along um, in the uh, 60s, because I was born in 1948, there was a protocol uh, on courting or dating and relationships with young people. One of the things was that um, for um, a boy, if, um, let's say you expressed interest to a young lady that you were interested in her, if she, in fact, let it be known that she wasn't interested, the situation ended right there, okay? You just didn't persist past, you know, someone telling you they weren't interested. The second thing was, if the young lady let it be known that uh, she was amenable to that, what would happen next would be she would, in fact, go home and tell her parents that she um, wanted you to make or she would be able to receive a phone call from you, okay? All right. And um, that was a big deal because uh, you just didn't up and call someone's home without parental permission. Now, today that's passe, okay? If a girl was allowed to receive phone calls from you, when she would give you your phone number, we didn't have touch-tone phones then. You had rotary dial phones. So um, you had to know how to spell. So, for instance, if a girl told you that her phone number was uh, Dunbar14567, well, you had to know that Dunbar was spelled D-U-N, so the prefix would have been, um, I think Dunbar is on, on the keypad, if I remember correctly, is 3-8. So you'd have to dial 3-8-1-4-5-6-7, okay? And um, that was just, just interesting. And uh, I came up, obviously I came up in the West End, and the prefixes then were um, Dunbar 3 one Garfield, 421, Cherry, 241, and Maine, 621. And then after people started uh, having more telephones, uh, there was a prefix, uh, 579 uh, came into existence, oh, I'm going to say starting in the early 70s. Because mathematically, all of the other prefixes were exhausted once people started being able to afford more, you know, more telephones. So the uh, next thing is, after being able to make a phone call, and uh, the phone call then would be confined to somewhere between maybe 7.30 to 9 o'clock. You didn't call people's house, really, after 9 o'clock because 
at that time, the preponderance was that what could you be talking about? And, you know, uh, the cell phone wasn't invented then, and you, you weren't going to have a telephone in your room anyway and all of that. So the adults at that time felt that one of the things was you were going to school, and so you needed to be in bed by a certain time so you could get up and be on time for your classes. Well, after, uh, you know, receiving phone calls and the relationship would begin to materialize, the next thing a girl would do would be to, in fact, um, ask her parents could she have company. Now, that accomplished uh, two things. It respected her parents, you know, and the other other thing of it was it, uh, what am I trying to say, set the stage for her parents to meet you because they were highly interested in uh, what kind of character you had and, and that kind of thing like that. Now, here's another dynamic. If she lived with both her mother and father, both parents were aware of the presence of a boyfriend, okay? In other words, mama didn't hide nothing from daddy and all that kind of stuff like that. There wasn't any, you you, you know, it, it was cohesive. Because the worst thing that could happen if you were a boy was to show up at a residence, not on the door, <laughs> and the father answered the door, and uh, he didn't know that, A, you were coming, and, B, that that was a boyfriend involved because he potentially would say, I don't know nothing about you, son, and, uh, you know, close the door. Uh, fathers were intimately involved in the lives of their children, especially their daughters, okay? Well, after being able to come over and have company, and company was confined to living room, you didn't go all over the house and, you know what I mean, you didn't go up in a girl's bedroom and all that. That that, that wasn't, that, that wasn't going to happen. So um, next thing would be you'd want to take the young lady on a date, and the date then was something like the show or uh, the zoo or Coney Island. Another thing that was common then was what was called pass writing. On Sundays, you could buy a pass, get on any bus, buy a pass, and that pass would allow you to get on and off buses so, you know, you could travel all over town and that that if you went past riding with your girlfriend or boyfriend uh you in fact could see the city and that gave you time to be together and that kind of thing like that and that pass was good all day up until i want to say maybe eight or nine o'clock at night something like that after dating uh and going on a couple of dates and everything else like that a very important dynamic would evolve. Both her parents and your own parents would then pose the same question, especially 
after you graduated from high school. They would both ask you, what are y'all going to do? Which suggested, are you going to fully consummate this relationship? Because the expectation then was, if you found yourselves that compatible, then obviously marriage was on the horizon because that was the culture and the expectation and um, really the standard of family. I was also surprised by a tragedy that happened right on his block. I was uh, 11 years old, and on Saturday nights from 10 to 10.30 was a Western called Gunsmoke. And at the exact time that Gunsmoke was going off, 10.30, this is when the explosion happened. Prior to the existence of the what's now the Ohio Lottery, it was formerly the numbers game, and it didn't get much attention until uh, it was discovered that in the mid-50s that it was grossing $5 million a year. Now, $5 million in the 50s was a lot of money. And uh, it was derogatorily described prior to that, and you can quote me on this, as a penny nigger game until it was discovered that this, you know what I mean, uh, game, in fact, was starting to take in that much money. Now, the reason why I'm sharing that with you is because since I grew up on Dayton Street, and I think the year was either 58 or 59 in in November, a bomb went off across the street. I I mean, literally a bomb. I don't know if it was TNT or dynamite, but there wound up being like a war within the the numbers game. And a lady across the street, uh, who in fact was a number writer, switched her allegiance from one bank to another one. In some kind of way, in that transition, she wound up being killed. And uh, then the night the bomb went off, that was a second lesson or second message being sent. And um, I'm talking about 1116 Dayton Street. And we lived across the street at 1115. And the explosion broke out windows all up and down Dayton Street. Uh, Some people over on York Street windows were broken and, you know, stuff like that. That's an interesting part of West End history. Uh, The reason why I'm saying that is the Ohio Lottery now is the child of number writing. And uh, this isn't spoken you know, in uh, spoken about the way it should be, because if it's not for black people, there don't be no Ohio lottery. That's what I'm getting at. So now there's billions made, and we get nothing from it. Part of his street was erased when I-75 was constructed. The bottom of Dayton Street, Dayton Street used to run down to Western Avenue. So the 1100 block... Gets absolutely got decimated 
and 1127 on the south side of the street is the last building. All of the other 1100 numbers, stuff like that, was cut out of there. Gone. I remember houses being torn down. I remember at the bottom of Hebrew, I mean, of um, Dayton Street, land being cleared. The next thing I know, cement was poured, and um, about, I don't know, one, two, three, about 500 feet from the building on Dayton Street is now I-75. Mm-hmm. And the noise that goes with it. Half the people that I went to school with at Everly wound up having to move somewhere. Next time I saw them, I was in the 10th grade or somewhere else. I didn't know where they moved to. Some went to Avondale. Some went to Cumminsville. A few went to Evanston. You know, they went where they could find uh, uh, a suitable place to live. At that time, the West End was a community that literally ran almost from the river all the way north uh, up through, like, Lynn Street, Central Avenue, John Street, or whatever. And it ran all the way to uh, to the north where all of those streets, due to the contour of Central Parkway, and that was a huge area, and that truly was a black community. Now, as African Americans, we don't have a community. We're all scattered in a series of neighborhoods. So the cohesion that we had, in fact, that created those protocols because most of our parents were Southerners, so they brought with them those values of family and education, worship, and things like that. And that's what made the West End vibrant. So that whole experience systematically vanished. The values, the knowledge, camaraderie, and all of that systematically evaporated. There is no theoretical, physical black community. You can have a neighborhood with a significant number of black people, but you never had what what was lost. When they ran the expressway and all of that stuff under the pretense of urban renewal, at least 40,000 people were displaced with no definitive place to go to. So the business community of the West End is permanently destroyed, and it can never come back. All of the merchants were out of business, and you couldn't pick up and relocate somewhere because there was never a plan to create a neighborhood where all of the displaced people could go and keep the same initiatives and things like that that they had. It was destroyed forever. Neighborhoods never recovered. So our business owners went from running the business to having to try and find a job. So, see, that intrusion 
which is exactly what it was, is permanently devastated. Anytime you have a community and you eliminate its business infrastructure, how could it ever be the same? When I asked if he thought the stadium would reinvigorate the West End, he said, How's that going to help the neighborhood that got destroyed in the late 50s, early 60s? How are you going to bring the businesses back? The stadium can't provide what was lost. The stadium's going to make millions for itself, but that wealth's not going to be dispersed throughout the neighborhood. What happens is this is a cyclical thing that happens throughout the country. It's just not unique to Cincinnati. Interstates and all that were run right through black and low-income neighborhoods. By intent. You know, why didn't they, why didn't they run I-71 through Indian Hill? Oh, and it becomes obvious. <laughs> Those people got the wealth to say, no, no, you can't come through here with that. Run that over there somewhere. So there will be a few good-looking things, but, young lady, it could never, never replace what was lost. Thank you so much for listening to this installment of the West End Stories Project. The West End Stories Project is brought to you by the Cincinnati and Hamilton County Public Library and is co-produced by your host, Key, and our grants librarian, Kent Mulcahy. If you like what you've heard, listen and subscribe to the West End Stories Project wherever you get your favorite podcasts and help us get discovered by leaving a review. Thank you. Okay. End of passage. <laughs>